Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a lot of things we do every day of our lives that are pretty routine. We don't even think about it as we're doing it. And one of the other principles that happens is we talk. But the fact is, how we talk reveals a lot about who we are. Imagine a person comes up to you and says the following. I was out driving the other day when I had a punctured tire. I pulled off to the verge and opened the boot. There was no spare. So I opened the bonnet, and fortunately, a lorry driver saw the raised bonnet and stopped to help me. Anyone who knows Great Britain has probably heard something similar to that kind of language. Winston Churchill once said that English and Americans are two great peoples divided by a common language. And you can, as you heard me read that, you can see that case in point. And if you had trouble translating, let me just translate it. I was out driving the other day. When I had a flat tire, I pulled off to the shoulder, opened the trunk. There was no spare. So I opened the hood, and fortunately, a truck driver saw the raised hood and stopped to help me. The way we talk reveals a lot of things about us, especially when it comes to how committed we are as being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with our accent or our vocabulary or grammar. It has everything to do with how we use the God-given gift of speaking. We have to ask ourselves at times, do our words hurt or do they heal? Do they work in service to truth or to falsehood? Do our words build up or do they tear down? These should be the concerns we have, especially as we're hearing from Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. The particular letter to the church at Ephesus is a, a cyclical letter. It cycles around. Uh, a courier would take the letter Take it to one church that Paul had been at. It would be read, talked about, studied, and sent to the next church and the next church. Some have said, some scholars have said that Paul didn't write this letter. I prefer to believe that Paul did based on some of what uh, the language that's in it. Again, Pauline language. But what Paul writes about in these chapters 4 and 5 is a, is a collection of ethical advice, much of which can help us as we understand as Jesus' disciples how to talk to each other, and talk to people in our community. So we start out with the very beginning. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. That pretty much sounds like a no-brainer. We're supposed to speak the truth. Everyone knows that. And I know we like to imagine ourselves as fundamentally truthful and trustworthy people, but you know, sometimes we have to remember the question that Pilate asked. What is truth? What about the infamous little white lies that we tell one another so we don't hurt each other's feelings? What about when the dental hygienist asks you, well, did you really floss twice a day? And you know what the answer is, but you say yes anyway. What about how you deduct expenses on your tax returns? Telling the truth isn't always so straightforward and simple. Think about some examples of things we say or do after we have to follow an explanation of why we're telling that little white lie. We say, well, you know, I'm only human. One of the ones I always hate was, everybody does it. I did what I had to do. How about if I don't do it, somebody else will. Or nobody's perfect. 
I mean, if we find ourselves using those kinds of rationalizations, we're, we're pretty much in the deep water already. Speaking the truth always and everywhere is one of the most important ways, <clears throat> excuse me, to talk as a person of faith. The problem is we know. We fail that simple test almost every day. Can any of us ever hope to speak perfect truthfulness? I think it's part of our sinful nature to, to bend the truth from time to time, but maybe the best that we can hope for when it comes to that in our lives is that maybe those little ethical alarms go off when we do it, just as a reminder to keep the goal of being truthful always before us. You know, Paul also talks about being a Christian and how we talk. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the, <clears throat> excuse me, the devil a foothold. We know those first two lines pretty well. But that third one, don't give the devil a foothold. That's also an important part of what Paul's sharing. Maybe that verse makes you sit up and take notice. In your anger, do not sin. I think that statement sounds really strange to us. Because most of us maybe have been taught that anger isn't Christian and ought to be avoided at all costs. Many of us have been taught that the most important characteristic of being a Christian is to be nice, not to make waves, to smile a lot, to be soft-spoken. And the truth be told, some people still believe that Christians, all they are is doormats. Think of the TV show The Simpsons and Ned Flanders. Half of the power tools in Homer Simpson's garage belong to Ned. Homer borrowed most of them a long time ago, and he never plans on returning them to Ned Flanders. He's even gone so far as to scratch out Ned's name off of every one of the power tools and put Homer on top of it. But he still keeps walking up to Ned over that fence and saying, Hey, Ned, can I borrow your latest gadget? And what does Ned always say? Oakley doakley, neighbor. Ned's portrayed on The Simpsons as someone who reads his Bible all the time, but you have to wonder, does he ever get angry? Has he read Ephesians? In your anger, do not sin. You know, it was okay if he wanted to get angry at Homer. He hasn't returned anything that belonged to him. Again, as we look at our scriptures throughout the whole Bible, it's clear that people of faith do get angry. Nowhere in any of the instructions that Jesus gives us will you find the command, be nice. In the way that Ned Flanders, of course, is nice. It's all a distortion to equate anger with sinning. Jesus got angry. There are more than a few scriptures where he does that. In Mark chapter 3, Mark reports how Jesus is so angry with the Pharisees. It says he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He was angry for two reasons. One, their stubborn hearts. But second, because they had been objecting to Jesus' plan to heal a man's withered hand right there on the Sabbath. An even better example is the Jesus' cleansing of the temple. He's striding through with all this purpose throughout the whole temple courtyard, overturning one table, throwing the money changers out from someplace else, tossing seats. In Mark's version of the story, Jesus cries out, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He is exercising anger, righteous anger. 
In the Gospel of John's version of the same story, Jesus is heard cracking a whip made of cords. Now there's nothing nice about chasing people out of the temple with the whip. The difference is in both of these cases, compared to situations and we typically feel our anger boiling over, is in the reason for the anger. Most of the time we find ourselves raising our voices and getting mad because it feels like we're being personally injured or abused in some way. Somebody just squeezed into that parking place ahead of us, right? You had your blinker on and they swooped right in and took it. Or how about the person ahead of you? You think, I only have to go to the grocery store for two things. You get in the express line that says 15 or less and somebody in front of you has 45 items. So what's the first thing you do? You get a little snarky and hope they hear your voice, right? Well, I thought this was 15 items or less. There's an injury we feel. So what do we do? We respond in anger. Whenever scripture speaks approvingly of anger, though, the object is not our own precious sense of injury, but rather the injury or injustice inflicted on another person. When Jesus got mad at the Pharisees, it's because this poor man who came to him with the withered hand might not get healed because of something they say. It's an injustice. When he swings that whip of cords in the temple courtyard, it's on behalf of all the poor, the devout pilgrims who are getting swindled, their money stolen by the corrupt exchange system. Many of the great reforms in human history would never have happened were it not for righteous anger. Think of where the descendants of African slaves might be were it not for the righteous anger of a man in England by the name of William Wilberforce. He labored tirelessly for much of his life until the English parliament finally abolished slavery. How about the crusaders against human trafficking today who say that many tourists are traveling, many male tourists are traveling alone to visit Thailand. They're coming to partake of the sex trade. It's a lot easier to put our hands over our ears and sing out loud so we don't hear it, pretending that doesn't go on in the world. But how about even in our own country? A high percentage of the Asian women who are kept in virtual slavery and massage parlors in Atlantic City, Las Vegas, and New York were trafficked here by people who told them they were going to bring them to America to get jobs, to wait tables, to work in factories so they can send money back to their families. But because it's not true, the women have kept quiet because they're afraid of not only being deported, but being murdered. We could easily be forgiven for swinging a whip of cords in response to situations like that, right? As we continue to look through Ephesians, Paul moves on to supply some more practical advice about managing anger, righteous or otherwise, by talking about not letting the sun go down. In other words, don't hang on to it so obsessively. That's good advice for a marriage as well as any kind of social reform. Those who live their lives driven by anger eventually pay a bitter personal price. I have a friend of mine in the fire service who I've known for an awful long time. He is a very bitter man, an angry man. To use Billy Joel's phrase, he's an angry old man now. He's so angry at how people have treated him over all of his life. And because every time someone calls him, he goes through the litany from start to finish again. Can you imagine why people don't call him? 
I've called and talked to him about giving him hope a little bit, but he doesn't, he, he just wants to give his litany and be done with it. He's suffering a bitter personal price. And that's loneliness because he's held on to this anger for so long, he has no friends to call him anymore. Theologian Frederick Beekner points out in his book, Wishful Thinking, a point about anger. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. My friend is letting all of that eat him, and there is nothing left. If we decide not to let the sun go down on our anger, if we make sure we take time for rest and peace, even in the midst of the most difficult of times, we will be able to find the staying power to stick with our lives and live it in a new way for a long time. Something else that Ephesians says about how we are to talk as Jesus' disciples is, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. The other part of that I like is that also, not just for building others up, but for those who are listening as you're building others up. The word that's translated as unwholesome is often translated as evil or evil talk. The original translation of the Greek word for unwholesome literally means putrid, as something as rotting fish. You know, when you hear that kind of definition, it makes you wonder, what sort of talk is worthy of that kind of description as putrid? You may think that this passage must be about profanity or obscenity, but read on and Paul will tell you. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. That's what's putrid. That's a huge list. Bitterness, of course, is a type of talk that keeps us calling back to mind those experiences that hurt or painful, some of which we need to leave alone. We've all known injured people who just can't let go, like my friend. Some people go to their graves feeling bitter for the way their parents or their spouses or their children failed them or they rebuke themselves because of missed opportunities in the past. Bitter talk, when it continues for a very long time without let up, causes terrible emotional and even physical harm. Not to mention misery for those people who then say, I'm not listening to it anymore. Next on the list is wrath and anger words we've pretty much talked about. Then comes the word brawlings, a creative translation of the Greek, which means shoutings or outbursts. We're not to be brawling, shouting at each other. If there is a place for anger in Christian life, and truly there is, if it's anger about injustice on the weak, innocent, it's got to be anger of a more focused and disciplined nature. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to change what's unjust. Then Paul talks about slander. The Greek for that is blasphemia, which of course we might recognize as blasphemy. 
Usually we think of that as taking the Lord's name in vain, but in the original Greek, it means slanderous, gossipy remarks of any kind. Another Greek word for slanderer is the word diabolos, which you may recognize as the root of diabolical, meaning devilish. It actually occurs earlier in this passage, too, when it talks about not letting the sun go down. Do not make room for the devil. Literally, it's not, do not make room for the slanderer, because we know Satan or the devil is referred to as the father of all lies. That's exactly what this word means. To slander another person has a diabolical purpose. Biblical scholar William Barclay mentions it this way. He says, there are reputations murdered over the teacups every day. Gossiping over bone china doesn't make any sense. But regardless of whether you're arguing over bone china, you can substitute it with maybe a cardboard cup at Starbucks if you want. But it's universal. There's a part of us that just loves to pass on that juicy bit of gossip, regardless that we know whether it's true or not. We have whole dimensions for doing this today. Social media, the speed which with one remark can make the rounds in even a minute is breathtaking. The final word on this list that Paul gives is malice or hateful feelings. And we've seen the damage such feelings can do by people and even with people with weapons in their hands. From the bad boys and girls of talk radio to the neighbor who perpetuates a feud with another neighbor, malice can kill. It wasn't too long ago you probably saw on the news the fire chief of the Mount, uh, Harding Mount Zion Fire Company was shot by his neighbor, Robert Kyle. Bob was a friend of mine. He and I used to run ambulance in Kingston. He was a good man. Played Santa Claus every year for the fire company for the kids in the neighborhood. And he died because of an argument over a property line. Malice can kill. Of course, as all of this has been pretty much a downer, we can find the hope in this passage by looking at the list that then Paul puts forward. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. That's the kind of talk we should always be striving to engage in with each other and with everyone around. Positive, upbuilding talk that if you're telling someone, someone else hears it. It's the, the countermeasure to all the anger and slander and all the rest of the stuff in the world. It's kind of like the thou shalt to the balance of the thou shalt not. Kindness, tenderheartedness, compassion, forgiveness. Those are the building blocks of our Christian conversation. Some will say, well, yeah, that's being weak. No, friends, this is not weakness. To speak this kind of language to the world that we are seeing out there today, it takes courage. It's not some sugary, sickening, sweet niceness. And it's certainly not about being a doormat. We are filling our mouths with positive, affirming talk that is a strong and grateful response to the forgiveness and grace we have received through Jesus Christ. When we consider how we talk, we also need to be sure how we translate, how we communicate. Because one wrong word can send everything off the rails. And that happened towards the end of World War II. In 1945, 
Many influential Japanese, including the emperor, were prepared to consider the terms of what was called the Potsdam Ultimatum. Before responding, the Japanese cabinet felt that they needed just a little bit more time, so they announced that their policy was, in their words, mokusatsu, meaning, and the first definition is to refrain from comment. But the second definition for that word was to ignore. You can imagine what happened next. The press translated the policy instead of refraining from comment, they said the Japanese were ignoring it. It was impossible once that happened and got out there for the Japanese to correct that wrong interpretation. Hostilities intensified and hope was lost for a settlement. Within weeks, the world saw the flames of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Also saw the division of Korea into North and South. The way we speak to one another as disciples and how we speak to others, it matters. I know they say talk is cheap, but the kind of talk we have as disciples of Jesus Christ is sorely needed in the world we're in today. It is priceless. We need to speak kind, compassionate, caring words because it's becoming the rarest of commodities today. Amid the sound and fury of all the the destroying hate speech all around us, it's the type of speech Christ calls you and I to share in that world. And it's not a weakness. It's a strength. It's courage to be able to speak that way to people around us, to let them know that they are loved and cared for, to let them know that God loves them, and so do we. Amen. As we come together to remember who we are, whose we are, we remember what we believe, and we share that out loud. If you would stand with me if you're comfortable standing as we join together in the Apostles' Creed.